1: And joining us on this Friday edition of Daybreak is our good friend Chris Hummer, National College Football Writer for 247sports.com. Chris, how you doing?
2: Doing great, man. Thanks for having me on.
1: Holding up in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, how are you? Are you getting creative at this point? I know from a, a work standpoint, we're all trying to come up with ways to cover college football in, in manners that don't involve practice or spring games or even right now, having a firm understanding of exactly what we're going to have in front of us in the fall, but uh, you've been doing some really great stuff there at 247sports.com and certainly big reason why we wanted to have you on the podcast today is to talk about the, the developmental rate at Alabama, and you've touched on this in the past, I know, in terms of how this has worked under Nick Saban in Tuscaloosa, but... Uh, talk to us a little bit about how this latest analytical piece is maybe a little bit different than what you've done in the past.
2: Yeah. So I've looked at overall development for top two, four, seven guys specifically. Um, any guy like basically four star prospects every cycle and how they transition to the NFL. Alabama was the top that ranking when we did it earlier this year, but I know just anecdotally from watching the drafts and kind of doing a study similar to this in the past that, five stars have a particularly high hit rate at Alabama. Something like that just kind of gets me curious, and I dove into the numbers a little bit, and it's it's pretty staggering. Um, 51.5% of Alabama five stars, at least those eligible, there are some distinctions, but it doesn't really affect the numbers much, go on to be first-round picks. So more than half. Um, everywhere else in the country, if you're a five-star and you go to a different school, and it can vary from place to place, but on average... They have a 21.2% rate of being drafted in the first round. So a five-star that picks Alabama is more than doubly likely, actually more like 150% more, or 1.5 times more likely to be drafted in the first round than if he goes anywhere else. And I think it kind of exemplifies why Alabama has been at or near the top of college football for such an extended period of time.
1: I guess one of the things too, and we'll get into some of this other stuff with you, but when I think of the time frame, 2008 to 2017 is the sample size we're talking about here—a uh, decade, essentially—and I think about the different assistant coaches that have cycled through Alabama's program. You know, this isn't a situation like Florida State under Bobby Bowden, where it seemed like in Tallahassee you had 20 years of essentially the same coaching staff, even. Are Uh, a a, a notorious analogy i know but the joe paterno situation at penn state this isn't those days i guess is what i'm saying chris you're seeing rapid turnover uh, a lot of turnover at the assistant level some guys are moving on quicker than they had in previous years to head coaching positions but uh, i i guess that makes the the number even more impressive
2: yeah and um I think the two teams atop this kind of list of five-star development are Clemson and Alabama. And it's, it's kind of funny how different they yeah. are. from that. Uh, I mean, we've talked about that endlessly already, like through kind of the national championship storylines that we've had, but even from a development perspective, I guess the one kind of steady quality at Alabama is the guy at the top, Nick Saban, um, who was very rigid in the way he approaches development and the way he structures his staff and the way he goes about things. Um, I think Nick Saban's more flexible than people would give him credit for in other areas, but there are some places where he's not going to bend. And the way he goes about developing prospects and kind of his belief in the system that he has is very stringent. And we see that carry through year after year after year. And essentially what Nick Saban's done is he's created this like ecosystem of competition. And I know competition is uh, an important priority everywhere, but Alabama is the only place where you're going to go and have quite as many kind of elite talents as they have on campus. And he pits those guys against each other. And it's a cliche, but iron sharpens iron. And we've seen that happen over and over again in Alabama.
1: We've heard so much throughout the years, Chris, certainly in the last 15 or 20, about the arms race, uh, facilities, uh, the broadening of staffs to include support staffers, analysts now. Um, I guess in fairness to some of these other programs, when it comes to doing that, and you give Saban credit for this because he's been on sort of the leading edge of that too, uh, more is certainly better when you're trying to develop players. And, And Alabama's had an advantage there. And here most recently what we're hearing more about are the two words, sports science. It used to be strength and conditioning. Now it seems like it's evolving more and more into uh, what Alabama looks to be transitioning to from Scott Cochran into David Ballou and Matt Ray. Can you envision that sort of perspective, that angle maybe becoming the next hot thing in terms of the the arms race that we talk about a lot?
2: Yeah, I think in some ways it's already really hot. Um, as you said, Alabama's been at the forefront of kind of the staffs ballooning, and that includes strength and conditioning staffs. I believe we are having rather either hit the first million-dollar strength and conditioning coach or we're close to it. Iowa's uh, strength and conditioning coach makes in the upper nine hundred thousands, and that's kind of a pretty significant mark uh, when you think about that. We're only what twenty-four years removed from Steve Spurrier being the first million-dollar coach. Period. Yeah. So, how things have changed. But yeah, it'll be. I'll be really interested to see what happens at Alabama with its new staff. Obviously, Scott Cochran had a significant amount of success in his time. But I think you also saw players, particularly at the linebacker position, getting hurt at a pretty extreme rate. And I think some of the sports science measures will allow players to stay a little healthier. And it'll be interesting to see with stuff like the Whoop app and the Apple Watches that I know Alabama is using how much further they can push that development. Because they've already pushed it to an ext- not an extreme level, but a really high level. And Nick Saban's always looking for that kind of next cutting edge thing to put Alabama over the top.
1: Yeah, Chris, I guess right at 52 percent or a little under 52 percent of a conversion rate of five stars into first round picks is pretty impressive. But 82 percent of five stars being drafted at all, um, I, I think, is right there with it. Clemson, a little bit of a higher percentage from that perspective. Let me ask you about some of these other programs that you've included here. Was there one or two that surprised you one way or the other? Maybe they didn't sign or or amass as many five stars as you would have thought before going into this research, or perhaps you thought their conversion rate to first round picks and or draft picks in general would have been higher. Did you have some things that sort of were reaffirmed for you? And were there some things that perhaps surprised you a little bit?
2: Yeah, I mean, for sure. Uh, Florida, and I've done these kind of studies for a year or two now, and I'm always surprised to see Florida kind of as high as they are. Um, those classes from like 2010, 2013, in terms of five stars, were really, really strong. Uh, Florida went through a lot of coaching uh, kind of turmoil during that period, but they've been developed and gainful no matter what. And I think that kind of speaks to kind of a sleeping giant, giant element of Florida, Um, Dan Mullen has, I mean, we know Florida is capable of national championships, but Dan Mullen has proven his chops as a developer time after time. And if he can kind of raise the ceiling of Florida's classes a little bit under his direction, um, I think Florida could be in a position where it could go on a really, really strong development run. Um, that kind of stands out, especially when you look at Mississippi state, which had a really nice hit rate, a much lower total, uh, during his direction, um, LSU kind of surprised me a little bit too. Um, their five-star development rates only at twenty-one point four percent in the first rounders. LSU has obviously had no problem getting players drafted. We saw that um, a couple weeks ago, but I think I think it would surprise some people to know that most of LSU's picks and like this DBU mantra that we've seen time after time, they've largely been kind of four and three-star guys that have uh, kind of bubbled up surprisingly, and I think that's a testament to. At Orgeron and his staff, and what they've done recently. Um, I don't mean to be long winded. On the other side of the coin, um, I live in Austin. We've discussed this before, but Texas' five star rate was 10%, like in the first yeah. round, picks. one out of 10. Like that just says everything you need to know about why Texas is in the hole it's in. But also, I think on the other side of that, you could argue that Texas, perhaps more than any other program, has room to grow in that way because they are always going to have somewhat of a right of first refusal. On kids in the Lone Star State and if they can get the right coaching staff in there and I think Tom Herman might be that guy we've seen I think we're going to see some people bubble up near the top of the draft next year there's a place for Texas to kind of grow and to kind of blossom quickly in a way people might not expect
1: I guess the study you did as well Chris illustrated a changing of the guard too in some ways in college football when you Look at 2008ish, and Saban was just really starting to get the thing rolling here in Tuscaloosa. Meanwhile, at Southern Cal, you're starting to wind down with Pete Carroll, Mac Brown, and Austin. Uh, still had some good teams, but it, it seems like there was sort of that that uh, that change that was coming in, in college football.
2: Oh, no doubt, and it's it's a change that we all know uh, pivoted to the southeast. Texas and USC were, at least for me growing up, were like kind of the it teams of college football. I realized it depends on what area you were in. Some people might follow Nebraska, it might have been Alabama for them, it might have been Penn State or whatever. But for me, it was Texas and USC kind of in the early 2000s in Oklahoma to an extent as well. And Nick Saban's kind of arrival at Alabama, I realized he won a national championship at LSU early in the decade, completely changed the way things work. And I, there will be books written about this in the future. But kind of that arms race that you talked about earlier and what Nick Saban did to kind of drag Alabama about everybody else, cause everybody to chase. And some schools, especially in the southeast, spent money to kind of keep up. And other schools out west, like USC, made some made some poor decisions and some bad hires. And they're still kind of middling as a result. And, uh, yeah,
1: the college football cynic, you know, is going to look at this study and say, well, yeah, look at the team's. Alabama, Clemson, Florida, LSU, Ohio State, Georgia, Florida State, Southern Cal, Texas. I mean, really, how different do you think a study like this will look in 10 years' time? Or are these still going to be pretty much the primary players in in, in your way of, of sort of projecting things,
2: Chris? I mean, I guess it depends on how you look at it. If you're talking about are these going to be the schools mostly recruiting the five stars, yeah. I, I mean, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Like Michigan might sneak in there, Penn State, Oklahoma, uh, Miami, potentially if things get off right, Texas A&M, they might all sneak into that equation. Like at the end of the day, like we all know college football is a blue blood sport. The teams that can spend the most and kind of put themselves in the position to attract these five-star players are always going to be at the top. I think why we see dynasties rise and fall and why we see teams be successful and not successful comes down to the hires they make and the coaching staffs they have. And the coaching staffs and the development at those programs is the reason why an Alabama and a Clemson have been top college football for the last five or six years. They're atop this five-star development process, or they're atop this five-star development rating. And that translates to the field, because if you're developing your five-stars, you're most likely going to be recruit- developing everybody else pretty well as well. And that environment has kind of allowed Alabama and Clemson to separate from everybody else, at least... Maybe until last year, we've seen LSU, Ohio State, and Georgia really push into that space. But it's kind of a it's a five team race right now, and those teams, for the most part, are developing their players at a better ratio than everybody else. It's like it's pretty self explanatory at the end of the day. But it is it is kind of eye opening to see the numbers rise and fall over time, and to kind of follow the teams because it usually is going to mirror mirror the results on the field pretty well.
1: You mentioned resources. We're going to hit on that. In just a second, when we come back with Chris of 247sports.com, the college football writer on the national level for us there at 247sports.com.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity
1: interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Now, Chris, again, you talked about resources in relation to being able to develop talent at a rate that certainly Alabama, you've illustrated, has been able to do it. The Blue Bloods, as we talked about, Uh, with this pandemic uh, that we're going through, and certainly on the college sports level, uh, you also recently had a piece about how it's impacting salaries, and I don't think a lot of folks were surprised to read that even though Iowa state is a power five program technically that if there was going to be an athletic department uh, at the power five level that was going to be impacted negatively and perhaps have to make some concessions to uh, try to compete at that level, it, it would be a place like Iowa state. And so with that in mind, um, you know, is, is, is this a stopgap type situation you think at places like Iowa state where, bonuses are or, or being withheld or deferred at best, I guess, and in trying to maintain contact with the, the programs and athletic departments that the Iowa states of Power Five are going to have to compete with?
2: I think for now, you're it's kind of those mid-tier Power Five program teams that you're going to see kind of uh, step into that um, area. I think yesterday, Arizona, or Wednesday, Arizona, uh, had Kevin Sumlin and um, their head coaches take a 20% pay cut. I don't think mm-hmm. it's exclusive to a program like Iowa State that has an athletic department budget of $80 million, But at the end of the day, $80 million sounds a heck of a lot different than, I think, Texas, which has a budget of $220 million. I think know, was a pretty significant gap. So they're not necessarily on a level playing field. What I would say about potential cuts and potential salary reductions in the future a lot of those bigger schools that we're talking about earlier in the five star development are probably going to be fine in the short term. A lot of them have reserves at least to a point. But those are also the schools that are spending on facility upgrades and coaching buyouts and everything else at a pretty high rate. I think if we have kind of an extended period where the economy lapses and college football seasons affected which affects everything about the bottom line of college athletics we're going to start seeing some of the bigger schools hurting too. They might make more money, but they also spend more money than everybody else. And college is kind of college athletics has kind of turned into spend what you got. Uh, and if that's the case, like I don't anticipate like Alabama going to Nick Saban saying like, can you please take a pay cut? But I can see a world in which the salaries that have kind of rapidly risen in college football start to slow down a little bit because it's just not an environment conducive to people getting paid a lot of money or at least getting paid more money than they are now.
1: Where are you at as we get into mid-May now or head towards mid-May in terms of this whole will they play, won't they play, will they play later? Um, Have you heard or uh, been swayed in a way by anything since we last spoke that has you feeling a, a little more of a definitive um thought about what college football in 2020 might look like
2: yeah actually briefly i want to point out it's not just those i mean it is for the most part the smaller athletic farms in the power five but oregon and usc have both taken like foot- yeah, yeah. It's
1: it's true
2: cuts already so like it's 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 not just exclusively iowa states of the world in terms of football in the fall i continue to believe we're going to have some sort of college football season In 2020, I've heard lots of different scenarios about how that could go and what could happen. I'm of the opinion right now that the most likely thing is we have some sort of delay uh, in the fall, perhaps cutting the non-conference schedule, which comes with its own set of hurdles because the non-conference schedule is worth a lot of money to both the teams that host the games and the teams that get paid to go play the games. But I think there is a significant... Um, kind of hope that they will be able to play football at some point maybe in early October or late October to get people on the field Um, the spring football potential the spring football season has been thrown out there a lot but I think the large the general preference is to have everything occur in the fall if possible and realistically if you cut out non-conference games and you push the season back a little bit and you eliminate the bye weeks you could be playing you could start playing football in late october and still finish the season on time in terms of the college football playoff and everything else like you could get to january 1st and have a nine game schedule played or a 10 game schedule played with conference championship games if you kind of uh reduce everything happening around it so i think i think that's possible but i think there's going to certainly be some holdouts over things like students on campus and where it's safe to reopen and where it's not. so we're we're still pretty far from an answer, I think. But I think there's more positivity around a season right now than there was maybe a couple weeks ago.
1: Here's the one thing I haven't heard or or at least had made clear to me. We hear about having to have students on campus. I haven't heard anyone say all the students have to be back on campus. So in other words, if there is a, a staggered opening for universities around the country. Uh, is it is it plausible to think that with that type of scenario, you could play football in the fall if, if you don't have all the students back? You, you get where I'm going with that?
2: Yeah, I've, I think I've had a couple athletic directors mention similar things. I think there's going to be a significant push that if most colleges can play, And most colleges have people on campus that they want everybody else to. And I think right now you're seeing presidents and chancellors hold the line saying, like, without students, like, it's impossible to play football. But, like, if we're in a new reality in terms of what classes look like, it's and athletes are also students at the end of the day, and they're taking those classes online, you're technically—I think you could argue that you're technically still on campus and you're technically still in classes— So there's, in my, like, I think you're going to start hearing arguments like that to the point where, like, if you're still taking classes and you're still a student, it's fair to say you can do kind of those um, extracurricular activities that make college what it is. And I think that's Mm -hmm. the argument you're going to hear from people.
1: Well, there you go, Chris Hummer. We got to come up with a nickname for the analytical one, Chris Hummer. I'm I'm not sure what we're going to, the accountant calculating Chris Hummer, but does just an outstanding job, uh, keeping you abreast of what's going on in college football for us there at 24 sports.com. As always,
2: Chris, we appreciate it. Anytime, man. And don't, uh, don't tout my math skills too much. I still struggle <laughs>
1: Well, of course you did. That's why you're right. That's, that's what happened to all of us. You know, if any of <laughs> us would have been good at math, we wouldn't have been in this profession. I can promise you that. No, Chris, uh, we appreciate it, my man. You're, you're, you're a lot better with it than, than I'll ever be, uh, I'm sure of that. But um, Chris does a great job, and we certainly appreciate him here at BamaOnline.com, and part of the Built by Bama Online podcast, which if you haven't already, we certainly hope you will consider strongly subscribing to the Built by Bama Online podcast. Also, leave us a rating, a review while you're there. We would appreciate it, and we definitely appreciate you. Have a great weekend, everybody.